Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on the Jack the Ripper murders. This is episode two, Capturing the Victims, Photography, and the Whitechapel Murders. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas. We have Howard Brown joining us in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello, Howard. How's it going, Jonathan? Pretty good. Uh, with us again this week from Hull is researcher Mike Covell. Hello, Mike. Hello, Jonathan. And our special guest this week is Robert McLaughlin, the author of the 2003 book, The First Jack the Ripper Victim Photographs. Hello, Robert. Hello, Jonathan. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Um, a couple of things before we get started is that um, this was brought to my attention on one of the forums that um, if you go to www.rippernet.com and uh, you attempt to stream the embedded audio file for our pod show, um, you may require QuickTime for Windows if you're a Windows user. Otherwise, um, you might not be able to just simply stream our podcast um, over your computer if you're the type of person that doesn't like to download files to your computer. We are also available um, for streaming or download via the iTunes Music Store. If keyword search Jack the Ripper, we're listed in the podcast section. And one more place that you can find our show is on the Pod Show Network at www.rippercast.podshow.com. So I just wanted to get that little bit out of the way. And we do have a correction from last week's show on Robert Donston Stevenson. And for that correction, I'll turn it over to Mike Covell in Hull. Hello, thank you, Jonathan. Um, basically, last week I stated that Robert Donston Stevenson's name was in the muster rolls held at the Bishop Gates Institute and were dated 1863. Um, upon further investigation, contacting them, um, it did confirm it was actually 1860, so I was actually three years ahead uh, in my dates. So it was on the muster rolls at the Bishop Gate Institute in 1860. Good. Let's make sure that doesn't happen again, Mike. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, buddy. <laughs> Okie dokie. And then now that that's out of the way, um, on to this week's topic, which are uh, the photographs of the Jack the Ripper victims. Now, Robert, you wrote a wildly popular book, The First Jack the Ripper Victim Photographs. And right now, it's a very hard to find uh, copy. Um, would you just um, at, uh, briefly explain to us um, the state of, of um, mortuary photography in the late Victorian period? What was the nature of crime scene photography? And, um, and introduce us to some of the uh, people involved in um, creating what we, uh, everyone, all the Whitechapel uh, murder victim photographs that we're so familiar with. In uh, Victorian London, uh, police departments uh, hadn't caught on yet to the fact that uh, uh, photography could be very useful as evidentiary value. They mostly used it um, for identification purposes. In fact, the Metropolitan Police did not have a proper photographic department until 1901, and the city police didn't have a proper photographic department until 1939. However, they routinely photographed criminals in an attempt to 
you know, identify recidivists. And uh, they also routinely photographed uh, dead bodies that they found in the street or fished from the Thames or murders that they found from the 1870s onwards. Um, uh, so they did uh, make use of it. Uh, in, in relation to the Jack the Ripper murders, uh, there's a, a clue in the official files of who the uh, victim photographer was. On the back of both the Martha Tabram photograph and the Francis Coles photograph, uh, and, and both of these murders basically bookend the Whitechapel uh, victim murders, uh, if, if you throw out uh, the one of uh, Emma Smith. But it says on the back of both the Tabram and the Coles photograph, uh, photographs of the unknown dead, in districts where a skilled operator cannot be obtained, Louis Gumprecht of 11 Cannon Street Road East is willing to attend on a few hours' notice on the same terms as the eastern districts are served, wire through H. Gumprecht uh, was born in Hanover, Germany, and emigrated to England in the 1860s, where he set up a photography studio on Cannon Street Road um, and became a police photographer. Uh, to supplement his income, he also uh, owned the Jolly Sailor Pub in Cannon Street uh, he married, had children, and between him and his wife and his family, they ran both the public house and the photography studio. His wife, unfortunately, died at the end of 1886, and uh, this is when he gave up the photography business. He sold the business to a man named Joseph Martin. Uh After he sold the business, um, he took his children, he moved out uh, to High Beach and bought a place called the King's Oak. Uh, hotel, where he and his family continued to run it until the 1930s, and there's no evidence that he ever returned to London to take any photographs. So he wasn't in London at the time, like when you consult all of the directories, uh, such as the Kelly's directories and others, uh, to suggest that he even took the Tabram or the Coles photographs or any of the victim photographs in between. Now, the man who took over for him at Cannon Street Road, Joseph Martin, was in London and was at 11 Cannon Street Road. Uh, he took over the establishment in 1887, just a year before the Ripper murders began. And uh, in a lengthy interview that he gave uh, just a couple months before he died, in October 21st of 1933 to the East London Advertiser, um, he mentioned uh, to the journalist that uh, he was a mortuary photographer for the Jack the Ripper victims. And uh, um, all the evidence puts him there at the right time. And he evidently took most of the photographs that we have today. Um, he obviously didn't take uh, the photograph of uh, Catherine Eddowes as she was found in the city of London. So a city photographer would have taken her photograph. But most of the other ones uh, would have, uh, both uh, the McNaughton Five and those outside that would have been taken by uh, Joseph Martin. So basically, uh, that's an introduction to photography. Robert, let me ask you this. Uh, in regard to the photographs, uh, when Gumprecht took photographs of the dead in London, did he just simply take a frontal fo uh, the frontal picture, or did he take more than one? Um, we do not know. I, I mean... Most surviving photographs of the time of dead bodies, we only have one particular photograph. 
Uh, it's usually a photograph that was taken um, after the after an autopsy was performed, um, or if it was before the autopsy, it was it was taken with the body covered up. And many of the photographs just tend to focus on the face, and I, that was basically because they would, when a body was found, they were found without identification in most parts. If they were found dead in the streets um, or elsewhere, fished from the Thames, and uh, they take a photograph and then circulate it in the area where the body was found, you know, amongst the local uh, lodging houses, the DOS houses, the businesses, to see if the person was recognized. Because what they wanted was a quick identification, whether there was foul play or not. You know, they wanted to inform the family. If there was something like foul play, the reason why they wanted a quick identification was um, because they lacked any of the forensic tools at the time. They wanted to get onto leads as soon as possible. So if, if, if they knew who the person was that they found dead in the streets, let's say a foul play, and uh, they did want to know who, who the person was first of all, and, and hey, maybe they had a row with their husband just two hours ago, right? So yeah. they could get on to investigating very quickly. Now, do you know, but, uh, do you know if the, uh, the photographs were taken to, to uh, supplement the, um, the viewings of the body, like... Um, because we read that um, you could uh, anyone from the neighborhood could go in and 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 view the corpse um, of the victims. Um, was was it was there a certain point? I mean, were they were they utilizing the photographs in in conjunction with uh, public viewings, or is this something that um, that they used uh, after the corpse, for obvious reasons, could no longer be viewed by the public. Do you know? <clears throat> um, they always, always uh, showed the photographs even before um, they would uh, take people down to the mortuary. Um, af after that point, it, it was basically moot. They would take the photographs around to, let's say, the lodging houses, uh, local businesses, wherever the body was found. And... Uh, to see if anyone could identify uh, the person through the photograph. And invariably, people would say yes, wh whether they knew it or not. And that's when they would take the people down to the mortuary to actually view the body, um, to try to get the, that confirmation. Um, in, in the case of Martha Tabram, it was initially confusing because uh, uh, they, they took the photograph around, they showed it around, and they had uh, three different women identify three different people and uh, hmm. it wasn't till after Marianne Connolly her drinking buddy from the night she was murdered and her estranged common-law husband uh, Henry Tabram uh, came forward that uh, Martha was positively identified um, so, so, so the photographs were always important uh, it, it happened also in, in regards to the Stride murder, as people may recall, and, and even the less-known uh, death of uh, Rose Millet in, in Poplar Yard at the end of 1888, where she was identified through a photograph. Robert, uh, considering, yes. that there, considering that there are more photographs of Eddowes than the other um, canonical victims and um, even Martha Tabram, do you think that the city police had a different procedure than the Metropolitan Police? Uh, it, it's quite possible that they had a more extensive uh, procedure that uh, uh, it, it's an assumption one can make. However, uh, it could also be because they learned from uh, 
the Metropolitan Police's uh, maybe not mistakes, but uh, lack of follow-up. Uh, no, uh, no murders in Toledo's had happened uh, on city. Uh, city territory. That's right. Uh, so, so the city police had plenty of time uh, to strategize if and when a body landed on their territory. You know, I'm sure uh, Acting Commissioner Major Smith and uh, Inspector McWilliam and and the other senior officers there at the city police probably talked about, okay, what happens if we get a body on our property, on our land? Like, what do we do? And I, mean, I think they had a plan in place because uh, Mitre Square seemed, everything seemed very organized. Uh, you know, right from bringing in Frederick Foster to draw plans, uh, you know, drawing the body of uh, Catherine Eddowes in situ, uh, you know, several several photographs at the mortuary. There may have even been more than before that we, that we already know of. And, and, and in turn, I think uh, the Metropolitan Police probably learned from, uh, from what the city of police uh, uh, did uh, when Kelly was murdered uh, six weeks later or five and a half weeks later in Miller's court. Uh, they sealed the court and treated it as a crime scene. They treated it much differently than uh, Cabram, Nichols, Chapman, Stride, you know? Yeah. Are, are you of the belief that there are more photographs of Mary Jane Kelly that, that exist, perhaps in France? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's anecdotal evidence, you know, from Walter Dew uh, to Don Rumbelow to Eric Barton uh, that more photographs uh, were taken. We didn't see it in the press at the time. Uh, it, it seems inconceivable that they would uh, close off Miller's Court and basically snap uh, one photograph, which is the famous one we know, and then a real obscure one from the opposite side of the bed and, and not right. snap any others. I mean, they were with the body from, uh, what, roughly just a little after 11 a.m. in the morning till after 4 p.m. when uh, when Kelly was eventually removed to Shoreditch Mortuary. So uh, we have to presume that more pictures were taken. Um, now, uh, they may have survived. They may not have survived. For example, uh, many of them may not have turned out. We know the lighting conditions were that day. Uh, the day was overcast. Uh, Miller's court was sort of a dark court, and we don't know if they could get enough light in that room to get all the angles that they needed. Uh, one photograph that definitely would have been taken on that day uh, was from the foot of the bed. Uh, the photographer would have set up his camera from the foot of the bed because that would have yielded the most information, uh, much more information than the side angle that we have Looking downward on her, correct? Exactly. And, and you would see her entire body as she lay there on the bed and was found. And that that would have been taken. Now, whether that picture turned out, we do not know. Uh, if it did turn out, it no longer exists. Now, eight, and, going, um, and, and, and going back to Edo's, uh, there would be also a, a missing Edo's photo. Uh, we all know the photo of her in profile, the close-up of her face in profile. But there would have been a one taken straight on of her face as well before they'd taken the profile shot. So we, we know there's an Eddowes one missing as well. Um, now, uh, 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 back to Kelly. Um, there, there's, some, um, there's, there's some dispute uh, as to whether Joseph Martin was the photographer at Miller's Court that day. Um, Adrian Fipers had, 
uh, in his dissertation that's uh, available on casebook.org, um, questions whether or not Martin was the one who took the photo photograph. But you worked with Adrian, um, and so could you go and do a little bit of that on and how you um, were able to uh, say for certain that Joseph Martin was the photographer in Miller's Court? Sure. Um, I can't say with 100% certainty he was the photog uh, photographer because he's not listed in any of the press reports or the surviving official documents. Um, one thing we do know, though, is that uh, Don Rumbelow is incorrect in his assertion that the city police took the photographs that day. Uh, in, in Don Rumbelow's book, uh, The Complete Jack the Ripper, uh, he posits a theory that uh, the city police were called in to take the photograph and indeed took a photograph of all the Whitechapel victims. Uh, unfortunately, Don didn't have all the information that, uh, you know, I have at my disposal now. And, you know, with the opening of the files and, uh, you know, the press reports that are easier to get at, uh, more directories that we can consult. So I, I, I have more information that I was able to consult uh, with. As for the Adrian Fipers article, um, the reason why Adrian was initially doubtful is that in the East London Advertiser article of 1933, just before Joseph Martin's death, uh, it only mentions him as a mortuary photographer and not a crime scene photographer or anything else. But Joseph Martin worked uh, right up until a few months before his death uh, as, a, as a police photographer. He worked as a police photographer for the Metropolitan Police for over 50 years. Now, I think it would be a real waste of his talents Especially come the 20th century, when uh, crime scene photographer be, photography became more advanced, it would be a waste of his talents uh, just to send him out to take snaps at a mortuary. Essentially, since he'd been doing this since the 1880s. Um, so I think that uh, when Mary Kelly was found murdered in 1888, they sealed the court, and they couldn't just call a portrait studio photographer from Commercial Street or Whitechapel Road. Uh, they needed a specialist, and uh, they'd obviously used Martin in the past, and uh, they definitely used Gumprick before that. And so I think they called on Levin Cannon Street Road, and they had plenty of time to find him and bring him back, because they knew they had a gruesome scene, they knew they needed a man with a strong stomach for it and a discretion for it, and uh, I think he snapped the photographs, and that made his reputation and that allowed the Metropolitan Police to keep him on as a photographer because, as I said, they did not have a proper photographic uh, laboratory until 1901. And the mere fact that they kept him on suggests that he had a very good reputation. Now, Mike and Hull, uh, you, must, Hello? you must jump in here. Um, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Um, well, one thing that has popped into my head while he was discussing uh, the possibility of more photographs in terms of the victims um, um, with the dead bodies being photographed um, and suicide victims is it a possibility that there may well be a, a photograph out there of the body of Montague John Druitt um, who was a ripper suspect whose body was found on Monday the 31st of December uh, in the Thames um, is that a possibility that a photo of him can be found? Um, absolutely. Uh, there's a there's a very good chance that uh, you know when they pulled him out of the, the Thames that 
that uh, he would have been photographed. And, you know, like the inquest papers for, uh, you know, Drew, everyone would like to find it. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm 100% certain that he would have been photographed. Um, maybe not by uh, Martin, uh, because they, they did have other photographers, uh, you know, and that, that would have been a, maybe a fair reach outside of his territory just for a suicide from the Thames, but, or a parent's suicide yeah. from the Thames. But, uh, no, it's a good question, Mike, and uh, they definitely would have photographed his body, yes. Thank you. What turf? What turf? Excuse me. What turf was Druitt's body found on, city or metropolitan? Would it would it fall under either of those jurisdictions? Um, technically, it would be uh, uh, metropolitan territory, but uh, the river police would probably deal with it first. Uh, the river police uh, uh, may have handled uh, some of the investigations early on. Oh. They're a separate entity from the um, city and the Met, correct? Yeah, uh, but they work closely with, with both. I mean, but it was, you know, their job to patrol the Thames and uh, and, and deal with uh, stuff on the water, you know, mm -hmm. crime on the water. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could get into um, the, the story of the uh, photographs that uh, were first published in France in the late 1890s, um, which are... Um, recognizably different than the ones that uh, we're familiar with um, that uh, Farson uh, I believe claimed to have discovered first but um, we know of from coming from uh, Rumbelow's discoveries sure why don't I give you a brief rundown of, of what we know about the photographs and, and what we have now and how we came to this point uh, photographs of all the victims in the files were taken at the time. Uh, a few survived intact uh, when the files, you know, were eventually opened um, uh, in 1988. Uh, but previous to that, uh, the only known publications uh, started in France first. Uh, in 1894, uh, a man writing a doctoral thesis named Andre Lamoureux uh, published a book about uh, death by disembowelment. And it was his thesis to become a doctor. And there's only one photograph in the book, and that's a photograph of Mary Kelly. Uh, five years later, um, his teacher, uh, uh, Alexander Lacassin, who for oh, basically the last 30 years has been credited with publishing the first photograph, um, which I proved, to, you know, through Lamoureux that that's incorrect. Uh, Lacassin, in 1899, in a book called Vacher, Le Ventre, and the Times, published the same photograph that Lamoureux did of Mary Kelly. That's the full-length shot on the back. And he also published one of Catherine Eddowes. And next, next time we see any pictures appear in the 1930s, in 1936, in the French art history book uh, magazine actually Minotaur number eight uh, both uh, the Kelly photograph and the Eddowes photograph from Lacassin and properly credited uh, were published along with an article um, we do not see any of the French photographs appear again uh, at least none that I found 
until one shows up actually in England, curiously enough. Uh, uh, Sir Christopher Frayling, uh, when he was doing his uh, Time Watch series uh, around the centenary in 1988, uh, for a magazine called, I believe it was Time Out, he published the Edo's photograph uh, that uh, appeared in Lacassin. But he doesn't credit it as such and appears to have published it without knowing uh, the original source. Now, that takes care of the French photographs. As for the ones from the, the archives that we know about, um, 1867 is very uh, crucial year. Uh, that was the year that uh, former policeman and riverologist uh, Don Rumblow, who was a City of London detective, uh, was searching through an old police building uh, with that was destined to be shut down and everything was going to be thrown out. He found, in that building, he found the four photographs that we have of Eddowes, the one, one of Mary Kelly, uh, full-length shot on the bed, and the one exterior shot of Miller's Court, presumably taken on the morning of November 9th. He made copies of these, uh, which he placed with uh, Scotland Yard's Black Museum with the Bow Street Historical Society. The Black Museum eventually passed their copies on to uh, uh, the National Archives at Kew. He also made a copy for Professor Francis Camps. Now, Francis Camps made copies for his friends, and I don't know how Don ever felt about that, but this is how Don, uh, Dan Farson uh, got a copy of it and published it in his book in 1972. Uh, Rumbelow in 1969 published the Kelly photograph in the Police Journal, another magazine. And Farson publishes uh, three of the Eddowes photographs, and he publishes the Kelly photograph for what he claimed to be the first time, which was incorrect. And he made this claim for 25 years uh, before recanting because everybody knew about the lack of sand photos uh, by then. Um, the next crucial period is, is 1988. Uh, because you have to realize, before 1988, we did not know what the McNaughton Five or the Canonical Five or whatever you want to call them looked like other than Eddowes or Kelly. We did not have a face for Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, or Elizabeth Stride. But thanks to somebody who had returned photographs, as well as other documents, to Scotland Yard that year, we, we had uh, pictures of all the canonical five, including the second angle of Kelly, taken from behind the bed across her body. And so there's been most of the important uh, photographic discoveries that we've had have been in the last 40 years. And basically, that's a, that's a brief summary of how we come to where we are today. Were, the, were these photographs that were returned in 1988 um, of Stride and Chapman and Nichols, were they uh, marked as as being um, the victims of Jack the Ripper, oh, like on the back? Or what, do you know what, what kind of um, labels or, or identifying features these photographs contain? Sure, they were, they were pasted on a board, and uh, the, the names are underneath the photographs. And uh, if, if anyone, like the only one who uh, publishes them um, uh, as they were originally sent back is, believe it or not, the wretched uh, original diary. So if you, if you have a hardback copy of uh, Shirley Harrison's uh, uh, diary of uh, Jack the Ripper, uh, you will see how they were returned to Scotland Yard in, in 1988. Everyone else just crops the photo uh, 
and, and you, but you'll see how they were actually returned with their names underneath and, and pasted onto a board. Oh yes, um, with a typewriter. Yeah. Um. Okay. Right on. Um. Another thing I was going to ask you um, is is about the Edo's photograph and and uh, La Cassin, um of where um, it appears that the uh, now some would say that it's a, actually a painting. Um, to me, it more looks like that it's been touched up slightly, um, but but not to any significant degree. Um, and then the Kelly photographs also, also the, the French versions of the Kelly photographs also have a different appearance to them. One even appears that it could have been taken from a slightly different angle, if you ask me. Um, um, could you explain that that how how uh, if you know how these photos? Photographs made it over to France. What what you believe the process was, in in, in um, getting them produced as they appeared um, in the late eighteen nineties. Um, it's it's very difficult to know how they actually made it to France. I mean, many many people had copies of the photograph in England, and uh, all the people that could have received them from Lacassin. Um, to his colleague Henri Coutin, who uh, did the, the translation for him uh, from uh, English text to French text of Arthur MacDonald, who supplies the essay uh, that uh, Lacassin used in his book uh, about Bachet. Uh, these were very well-respected men, and and they could have received photographs. Uh, um, Alphonse Bertillon, Basically, we know for developing the mugshot, the modern mugshot, uh, he was very well respected in the day. He could have received it at the French end. Um, as for who he, any of them received it from, uh, from London, it's it's difficult to know the route it took from London to Lyon, where where it was eventually published. Uh, because so many people had photographs. Uh, you know, George R. Sims, the journalist, had photographs that he obtained from McNaughton. And uh, we know from McNaughton, uh, McNaughton freely showed them about as uh, as Major, as, uh, pardon me, not Major Griffiths, uh, Arthur Griffiths, uh, who is, in, in his Mysteries of Police and Crime, told us about McNaughton that he freely showed them about. Uh, Dr. Gordon Brown in 1905 uh, took the Crimes Club around uh, for a tour of the Ripper murders and showed them uh, victim photographs. Uh, the band included uh, Corner Ingleby Odie, Charlton Collins, H.B. Irving, and Arthur Conan Doyle uh, was actually on that. So Dr. Gordon Brown worked on both uh, the Eddowes case as he was a City of London doctor, and he was also called to the bedside of Mary Kelly, as people will remember, on November 9th uh, to Miller's Court. So there are many people that had photographs, many pe and, and just only a few that could have received them in France. And um, I've, I've checked various uh, medical conferences and criminological conferences. And between 1888 and 19, 1894, when the photographs first appeared in France, those six years there was over 50 major conferences, including... Uh, 
even excluding, pardon me, the World's Fair in uh, Paris in 1889, which would have been a perfect chance for lots of people to meet. So I, I haven't yet found the connection. Uh, all I can say is that my leading candidate for passing it on would have been Gordon Brown because he worked on both um, murders, so he would have had photographs of both Kelly and Eddowes to pass on. And on the French end, uh, Lacassin, uh, who published photographs in 1889, and his student who published them in 1894, um, I contacted uh, the curator of the Lacassin collection in Lyon. Lacassin, three years before he died, donated everything, all of his criminological material, to uh, the University of Lyon, where he was the uh, um, uh, head of the medical department. And the photographs of the Ripper are not known to exist in his collection, unfortunately. Um, despite all the other photographs and illustrations from his book, Bachet de Bonture, uh, they are all in the collection in Lyon, but those ones aren't. So uh, I still haven't found them, but I'm pursuing a very good lead right now from his colleague, Dr. Henri Coutin, who I believe maybe received him. And uh, stay tuned, Ashley. And I, what what do you believe um, the nature of the the Edo's uh, the one uh, full length where it kind of cuts off at her knee? What what do you believe the nature of the, the any kind of doctoring of that photograph is involved? Okay, I know know most people who are listening to this podcast or who will listen to this podcast uh, down the road have not seen the photograph, and uh, so uh, I'll send some to you, Howard. Okay. Uh, that you can put on your site. Um, uh, I did have some posted at uh, casebook.org in their photographic section. Uh, Robert, excuse me, is that the one where uh, Catherine Eddowes is in the casket? No. It's it's, no, it's, uh, it's a one that's uh, taken from her head all the way down to about her knees. And okay. uh, uh, this is different uh, than any of the photographs that Rumbelow found. It, it, it looks like one in between the torso shot that we have, uh-huh. the full torso shot, and the full length shot. Right. It looks like one in between. And right. uh, if you look closely at the one in Lacassin, it looks like it's been uh, uh, painted a bit or enhanced a bit uh, for publication. And that may have been simply because uh, the salient details couldn't have been brought out otherwise. Maybe they were too indistinct right. because it, it looks like the, the stitching on the X's uh, on her body have been enhanced uh, to, to, to darken them. Uh, one of the X's on her neck actually appears to just be on the wall and half on her neck. Uh, there's shadings around her arms to make her come out from the wall a bit. Her hair is uh, a little bit different. And, yeah. But I must say that the touching up of photographs was not uncommon in Victorian England. It, it was done in many books. Uh, um, in fact, a very good uh, murder example of it is uh, Frederick Deeming. Uh, wife murder is as many, and Ripper suspect for a while, and probably still by some hardcore people. Uh, Deeming, uh, there's a very good photograph of Deeming in the Daily Mail in, uh, I believe, around 18. 1892 uh, of him sitting at a desk and 
uh, when Hargrave Adam eventually published a book about gaming in 1930, uh, everything has changed uh, about the original photo, except the, the head and the hands. Uh, the Hargrave Adam puts a different suit on him and makes a different desk for him to sit at. But the head is perfectly the same and the hands are perfectly the same. And um, But if you look at the original, you can see why he done it. He, he wanted to, to make Deeming look more dapper and he wanted to, you know, just uh, make the photograph more appealing, I think, to, to the readers. And I, I think it's no different than today where uh, magazines uh, and books... Uh, I use Photoshop to take wrinkles out of women or increase bust lines or, you know, things like that. Uh, they did it for aesthetic reasons. Yeah. Could that be a, one reason why the the, uh, the photos of the victims appeared in France before they did in England? Oh, I Some think, aesthetic uh, there? No, I, I don't think uh, it was aesthetics. I think it was just purely because uh, uh, the French were not averse to publishing uh, photographs of the dead. Uh, you you don't really find it in uh, uh, the more repressive uh, Victorian England, who, uh, who thought it you know improper to to do that. Mm-hmm. To to you know so that's why you see illustrations of the victims rather than than photographs. And we'll put Where's the, the we'll put the links uh, on. Um the show notes when uh, Howard's site gets uh, the Lock of Sand photos from Robert. So uh, sure. everyone, everyone will be able to view those. Absolutely. I'll send you a link as well to the uh, Victoria government um, has a fantastic website, um, The Extraordinary Tale of Frederick Bailey Demon. Now, if there's photos of Demon, you can guarantee they're on there. Um, you may not know this, you may know this, but Damien was a visitor to Hull. Um, he was actually locked up in Hull Prison um, back in 1890, 1891 time, um, for fraud. Um, so I do use this site quite often, um, but I'll send the link across to you um, so you can put it on there as well. Um, um, and a, Mike, a fantastic archive. Yeah, and Mike, that's, that's so, actually a, a good little point because uh, I also have another deeming point is that... Uh, um, his first wife, uh, who was murdered in Rainhill near Liverpool, uh, yeah, uh, they used uh, photography on her to identify her. Uh, when when they dug her up out of the concrete with the children, uh, the four children, they, they photographed uh, her and the four children, and they they showed her photo photographed around to make sure that it was her, and let's say not a neighbor or somebody else, right? So it, it was uh, the, the police that used uh, used it quite effectively in demon as well. And just what, as a little side note, what was the uh, if you know Robert? Um, what was the expense uh, of um, hiring a photographer to take mortuary photographs or crime scene photographs at the time? Because an interesting thing about this is that, in my opinion, um, we don't have mug shots yet. I mean, if if Scotland Yard uh, had utilized a photographer to take uh, pictures of suspects interviewed um, in the Whitechapel murders, then this would be, a, we'd be in, living in a completely different world right now. Um, it, it, uh, so what, if you know, what, <clears throat> what, um, what kind of expense do you think was um, 
was spent on getting uh, Martin to take these photographs and um, and what do you think would have prevented them from taking um, mug shots at this time if they were taking mortuary photographs I mean it seems logical that the next step would be to take a picture of, of suspects uh, sure let me handle the first part of that first um, uh, as for the expense I do not know that uh, if, if there's anyone out there, you know, who uh, can dig through payroll records and whatnot, and uh, maybe find out, uh, you know, you know what the photographer's pay was or or what the bill was, uh, you know, not even necessarily for the Whitechapel victims, but for around that time, if anybody can dig up something, because I, I initially for my book uh, couldn't find anything, and and it's something that I haven't gone back to actively. So if there's somebody out there listening. Uh, who wants to dig that up? Uh, it's a good little project to find out because that's a good question. Uh, but the pay definitely would have been more than a portrait photographer was making, which is why I think guys like Gumprecht and Martin did this. It was definitely more pay than they were getting for somebody to come sit for them in the studio. Um, uh, as for the other part of your question, uh, as we said, it was one of those technologies, like all technologies, that was underutilized. Uh, and not appreciate until many years had passed. Uh, we know that fingerprinting uh, was suggested by many people in the 1850s, 1860s, uh, you, you know, as a investigative tool and a unique tool. But it wasn't. It wasn't really. A, it was mostly a 20th century application. I mean, I mean, the first 40 years, you know, you can forget about it. And. Uh, even though uh, criminals were photographed in the prison system, like this we know from, once again, Arthur Griffiths, who was head of prison, prison officials from 1876 to, I think, 1892, something like that, um, where he said it was routine to photograph all criminals that came into the system. Uh, and that was done in an attempt to identify recidivist criminals. Now, as for uh, police departments... Uh, police departments, both in Europe and the UK, it was at their discretion uh, to photograph criminals that they brought in or suspected criminals. And one of the reasons why, uh, Jonathan, and I think you, I think hit the nail on the head, is uh, cost and logistics uh, is what it boiled down to. I, I mean, when you're talking a very high-profile crime, you're talking a lot of suspects, like in the Ripper case. You have to question a lot of people. You have to bring them in, a lot of people in. And we've seen that from trawling through the press reports, the hundreds of people that were taken in off the streets to uh, be cleared or to be held for a while, to be talked to. And if, you can't photograph them all. I mean, you can, but you'd have to have a proper photographic department, which, as we know, nobody really had until the 20th century. Uh, you couldn't just call. You, you didn't have a photo... Uh, uh, the camera equipment there and, and it would have been uh, they would have thought it just useless to do it like to bring somebody in photograph them, let him go and then say well why do we photograph him he's just some guy I mean who got drunk and, and stood up in a pub and or he had a knife on him and, and he's not Jack the Ripper um, in lower profile cases I, I think that's occasionally where you find uh, photographs is uh where the, the murder is actually known, where somebody kills his wife, goes in, confesses, 
they may have uh, set up photographs at that time then. I've certainly found uh, uh, photographs in Europe that are very common for, for this kind of uh, crime, where the murderer is known. But where the murderer isn't known, uh, even in Europe I don't find people taking photographs because logistically and cost-wise it, it didn't make sense, I think, to the Victorians to do that. Um, and a couple other questions I had was, um, these were, these photographs were produced uh, with uh, negatives, right? That was the technology that, that they were using at the time. So the prints that um, everybody uh, was carrying around uh, were produced off of the original negatives, is that right? Yes, and the original negatives, um, they could have been glass negatives, could have been some other form of negatives, because we don't know the camera that was used. Um, I consulted various experts uh, in photography and they told me without the negative it's impossible to know which camera was used. However, um, there's an ex excellent article by Dr. William Michael in Ripperologist number 80. That's Ripperologist number 80, Dr. William Michael, who um, I helped him with the article where he talks about the actual process and the equipment that was available at the time and how these photographs of the Whitechapel victims may have been taken and the process that was used for both development and the cameras. That, and it's, it's a very detailed article and it, it's uh, quite excellent for those that are interested in that side of it. And, um, and I also wanted to ask you about um, now this, this, uh, the photographs that uh, are in the records now that exist. Uh, is it true that the stride photograph is missing? Uh, yes. Um, not long after it was returned to uh, Scotland Yard and turned over to Q, uh, it was promptly lost again. Uh, they did microfilm it as, the, as they had uh, all the photographs at the time, and, and indeed everything that they had in the case at the time had been microfilmed. So uh, yes, it's, it's missing. So it was missing, then it was returned, now it's missing again, unfortunately. Uh, another case of uh, pilfering from the files, I'm afraid. All right. Well, um, does uh, anyone, Howard, do you have anything else? Yeah, I, yeah, I sure do. Uh, Robert, I wanted to jump ahead a little bit here about Joseph Martin, and I'm reading from page 60 of your book, and you had mentioned the East London Advertiser, the October 1933, October 21st, 1933 article, 50 years a corpse photographer took Jack the Ripper's victims, Limehouse Man's memories, and it was... In particular, it was the section on the Princess Alice disaster. If you don't mind, I'll just read a little bit from it, and maybe you sure. can make a comment or two. All right. Mr. Martin often used to play in the steamships that went from London Bridge to South End and Margate. He was on one occasion asked to play on the Princess Alice, and his sister and brother-in-law, who were arranging a day out, agreed to take tickets on the same boat. On the evening before the day, his employer told him that he would require him to play at the Holborn restaurant instead. He was disappointed that he could not get in touch with his relatives, but he went to the restaurant. He finished playing there in the early morning, and while on the way home, called at a coffee stall. There, men were talking of the tragedy of the sunken ship and the many lives lost. I walked home stunned, said Mr. Martin, and thinking of the fate which must over overwhelm my sister and brother-in-law. To my great amazement, when I went to the house of a relative to ask if any details had been received, I met them face to face. I said, I thought you were dead. And they replied, we thought you were too. 
It transpired that they were held up on the way to Woolwich, and then when they arrived, the steam, steamboat was already in midstream. I consider that the miracle of my life. O on the Princess Alice, Robert, um, Elizabeth Stride is, and it's in almost virtually every Ripper-related Ripper book, about Elizabeth Stride claiming that she lost her husband and several Absolutely. children on the same disaster. Uh, would you like to elaborate a little bit? Oh, sure. Like, uh, you know, obviously that was a, you know, a great ending for uh, for Joseph Martin because it's, you know, in the article, it's it's one of the stories that he recalls, you know, from his, his long life. So it was obviously yeah. important to him. But, yeah, as, as for the uh, Elizabeth Stride, Elizabeth Stride uh, claimed that her, her husband John Stride and uh, two children uh, were on the Princess Alice that day when it was you know, hit by the Bywell Castle in right. the Thames Estuary and, and sank. And and on that day uh, in 1878, uh, nearly uh, 700 uh, men, women, children lost their lives. We don't have an exact count, but it was high. Almost everybody on board the Princess Alice because uh, it was hit by a collier that was six times bigger and it, it sank in, right. in about five minutes from all reports of, of the survivors. Right. And uh, a relief fund was set up. Uh, uh, for the victims, and uh, we, there's no record of Stride, Elizabeth Stride, ever uh, applying for this. And uh, we know, you know, from details of her life, that her husband John Stride was alive and well until 1884 when he died, six years after the Princess Alice right. sank, and that they and that they also didn't have any children. And uh, right. she also claimed that while she, while the the ship was sinking, she held to a funnel, and and a policeman took a boot, kicked her in the face, and injured her palate, which uh, Dr. Phillips, uh, when he examined her, because the story came out before his uh, post-mortem examination, proved that her uh, palate was intact. So I, I think she she pushed this story forward uh, for two reasons, sympathy and charity. You know, it would help her in, in both both ways. Yeah. You, you know, maybe she, she could use it to solicit some money and also a little sympathy, so... There's, a, there's one other little story before uh, someone takes over here um, that comes from the same article. It's called The Corpse That Walked. And this, is in, this is in regard to Joseph Martin. He once entered the mortuary to photograph the body of a man who had been found drowned. He approached the coffin and saw it was empty. He heard a footstep and turned around to see a disheveled figure who shouted, Where in the hell am I? You clear out, said Martin, and the man did. Later, when he described a visitor to the mortuary keeper, the latter said, that's the man who was found dead on the edge of the tide. Apparently, he was not dead, but dead drunk. It seems to have been a colorful profession, huh? Very colorful, and I'm <laughs> not sure how often that happened, but it, it, I think it displays some of the nerve that it took to do this job, right? I mean, if, yeah. if that happened in a mortuary, a lot of people would have been skittish and... And, and they would have been running out the door with, with the guy who was supposedly drowned, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, but he seemed to take it all in stride, and for him, just another yeah. day at, at work didn't seem to phase him at all. I believe uh, Jonathan mentioned before, before the show, um, about the fact that Joseph Martin lived near George Yard or went to the ragged school there. Would you uh, could care to elaborate on that? Sure, because his first love was uh, that as a musician. Um, he did it all his life. Uh, he earned a living uh, that way for before he took up photography in the 1880s. Uh, he quit school at the age of nine, uh, worked with his father, who was a very austere man, for a couple of years, but he didn't like the sixpence that his, uh, a week that his father paid him. I mean, 
that's slave labor. So he didn't go to school. He he picked up his uh, instruments uh, and uh, he tramped around the country playing, even as a young child. And uh, you know, he said Derby Day in Epson was very popular. He he could make lots of money then. The first time he played, yeah, there, uh, him and twenty Dan pounds, twenty pounds, which was a ridiculous yeah. amount of money. And, and you can see why yeah. he did something like this for twenty years. And yeah. it seems like all the photographers I find at the time uh, had a second profession that they needed that other income that because photography uh, you, you know once Archer developed and Disdary developed cheap prints you know that, that could be easily produced uh, the profit margin was very low so it was very difficult to make a living just off of studio photography you know unless you were some West End uh, photographer who was charging ridiculous prices to the lords and ladies now do, do any photographs of Joseph Martin exist None yet. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, his brother took a famous photograph. Uh, because Joseph Martin came from a family of photographers. His father, uncle, and brother were all photographers. And uh, his brother, John, took uh, the photograph of Stephen White, Detective Stephen White, uh, that Rob Clack found a few years ago. Uh, which which was a terrific find, both in that, hey, we now have a picture of Stephen White, but also uh, I think that it shows, um, you know, some of that nepotism that, that always goes on in, in life. That uh, Joseph Martin, he takes pictures for uh, the police in mortuary photographs and maybe crime scene photographs, and uh, he throws a little business his brother's way. Uh, where So I, I think... Because I've been focusing on Martin and Son to look for other police photographs. Uh, maybe he took a lot of uh, retirement photographs. Perhaps even the elusive Frederick Aberline. Robert, quick question. Uh, excuse me. Luke on page 65, um, the page 64 has a Stephen White photograph that was found by Delia Lawrenson and Robert Clack. Um, on the page 65, there's the back of that. There's a gentleman on there, and it's written Stephen White. But that's not Stephen White. Uh, it's, the, it's the back of that photograph. Do you know who that is? So on page oh, you mean the, oh, oh, you mean the back of the photograph? Yes. Um, oh, yeah, that, that's Martin and Son. Uh, that's uh, Joseph Martin's brother, John Martin, on, okay. on the reverse of the photograph. Yeah, right, on, uh, you right. mean the back side, right, of the Stephen White yeah. photograph? Yep. That's a photograph yes. of John, John Martin, Joseph Martin's brother. And um, isn't there an illustration of Miller's Court that shows a photographer taking the um, side view um, uh, of Mary Kelly, or, or am I hallucinating? I mean, I seem to recall. No, well, I've that, seen that, it that's, from the, that's from the Illustrated Police News, and uh, uh, because uh, I, that, that's what I, I was leading as far as the Joseph. Right. If there was a picture of Joseph Martin in existence, then maybe um, the uh, the illustration of the uh, man taking the photograph could bear some resemblance if it was uh, on, on location illustration, which I would probably, I doubt that that's actually what took place. But Yeah, there were no on-site on illustrations uh, at the time. Uh, the court was closed. Uh, we, there was nobody getting in that until after, uh, and, until after uh, Kelly's body was removed at 4.30, shortage mortuary. And and uh, it's it's actually a very crude uh, drawing. 
from it's from the Illustrated Police News. Right. Uh, I, I was unable to find it. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I, I've and I've reversed the photo for my book. Oh, okay. Only to show only, only to show the proper angle. Uh, right. In, yeah. And and actually, a couple other people who have reproduced the photograph also tend to do that. But I, I might send that one along to Howard as well, or he can scan it out of my book. Sure. All right, that that'd be great because uh, I'd like to see that one again. It's been a while since I've seen that illustration. Well, I know because it's it's here we are on an audio medium and we're talking about visual things, and it's very difficult for the people at home, which is which is why like if if they go to Howard's site, uh, JTR Forums, uh, that they can look at these things and listen to the podcast. I think would be good, you know, and right, and, and they can understand a bit more about uh, what we're talking about. Exactly. Now, yeah. Mike, is there anything you'd like to add to this conversation? Uh, bringing it up to Robert to, to more personal, um, you know, a little bit more about yourself. What sure. areas of the case now hold your interest? I mean, obviously there's the, the photographic side and the side of the victims, but are there any other areas that draw your interest? Uh, it seems that I always find myself in, in, in obscure areas, you know, whether it be the photographs or uh, something else. Um, for example, uh, right now, I've, I've returned to sort of research that I was doing uh, before I wrote my book, which is on uh, pioneering Canadian journalist uh, Kit Watkins. Uh, she visited London in 1891, the end of 1891, and wrote subsequent articles about it. She made several visits after that, but in 1891, she visited all the murder scenes, including Miller's Court. And uh, people may remember Andy Ailiff's article, Kit, Kitty, Kitty, uh, Kit, Kitty, Kitten, uh, about uh, the Kitty Ronan murder in Miller's Court in 1909, and Kit Watkins, uh, who had visited Miller's Court, you know, in 1891, and and found that there were still bloodstains on the wall, and uh, but she's a very interesting character, and and she, Canadian she wrote, lady, correct? Yeah, and, and she she wrote a, an article uh, called Woman's Kingdom, and, and she wrote it at a time that, that ladies were usually only writing uh, recipes and books or about women's matters, but she had enough power that she could write about any topic she wished. She was also the first uh, female accredited uh, war correspondent in the world when she covered the Spanish-American War. Um, she's a very interesting lady, and uh, so, you know, look, look for an article on uh, her by me or... Or maybe something more down the road because uh, it's very fascinating in the way she's not only connected to the case but a lot of the tangents to the case as well because she was also a member of uh, Chicago's White Chapel Club where the Robert James Lee's uh, story originated from. Hmm. So I won't go too far out on a tangent, but yeah. you get the idea of what I'm working on now. But good question, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Bob, I and, Robert, uh, I had... sorry, go on, Howard. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Robert. I have one. Real quick question for you. I, I know that you are, but are you aware of any anyone else making any attempt to investigate the possibility of more Whitechapel murder-related photos existing in France? Um, I don't know of anyone uh, uh, who's actively looking. Um, if, if, if anyone is, uh, please feel free to contact me. Um, I'll leave my email with uh, Jonathan on his uh, website uh, uh, for this podcast. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me, uh, 
you know, about uh, collaborative research uh, into the photographs, or if they just want to, you know, ask some general questions about my book or things we uh, talked about here, I'm, I'm always uh, eager to, uh, you know, discuss uh, the matters with uh, other people. All right, and Mike, you had something more to say? Yeah, have you read any, uh, what sort of recent Ripper-related books have you read? Um, and what are your views on them? Uh, the last book I entirely read was uh, uh, Neil Stubbing Sheldon's the latest uh, update of his uh, victims book, The Victims of Jack the Ripper. Uh, yeah. Bas- basically because I-, I love Sheldon's research in- into the victims. And, uh, you know, he's discovered, of course, more relative photographs. And he, as we know, is the only person to have discovered a photograph of any of the victims whilst they were alive. And that was of Annie Chapman around the time of her marriage in 1869 to John Chapman. And it's a wonderful photograph for the people who've seen it. And Sheldon's made it available to a lot of people. And I just love his research. And Neil, if you're listening to this, please, you know, step outside the, the you know, McNaughton Five or the Canonical Five and, you know, do some uh, genealogy on some of the other victims. We would love to get that from you. I had one more question for you, Robert. Sure. Uh, in regard to your book, are, since, as it's known... Your book is a, was a limited edition. Do you have any plans on making it, uh, making a second edition of it, so that others who aren't as fortunate as I am uh, can have a chance to uh, purchase the book? Yeah, a lot, a lot of people uh, have inquired about that. Um, I'm still, you know, floored by the positive reaction that I received from it. And when I first published it in, 19, in 2005, uh, it basically sold out in about six weeks, and uh, I didn't expect it to sell out so quickly. Uh, I expected it just to be an obscure little title, uh, and I sort of decided, basically because I reproduce so many photographs, I, I reproduce every victim photograph, and I'm the only author who's ever done that. Uh, it, it's a it's a very costly book, and and I've approached uh, several publishers about a second edition, but it doesn't seem profitable for them or me to do it uh, because the amount of updating I would have to do. Yeah. And uh, for me to uh, self-publish a second edition, which which is perfectly fine, I wouldn't mind doing that again and maybe a, a larger print run. Uh, the only thing I think that would justify that for me personally and professionally is to find out more research. Like I, I have found out more research since the book, but I would still like uh, more original research uh, just to make it, you know, worthwhile effort. I, I, I just don't want to reprint the same book. Right. Do you see specialist books uh, becoming more popular than, say, suspect-based books? Um, I hope so, actually. Um, yeah. I'm sort of, su- I'm, I'm suspected out. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, uh, and, and it doesn't really matter who the suspect is. I've, you know, I've read them all as we, as most of us have. Uh, and, and the, you know, they covered the murders in, in the same way. And then they go on and they, they make their uh, case for their suspects, which is chock full of holes, and they, they trash everyone else's suspect, which is easy enough to do in the Ripper climate. But I do like the specialized books that are coming out. Uh, um, you know, whether it be Alan Sharp's Irish Connection, you know, whether it was... Excellent book. Excellent book, which underappreciated... Yes. Uh, uh, Chris Scott's you, books. You know, 
and Chris Scott's exactly his extraordinary research into Mary Kelly and his extraordinary genealogical and uh, census work. Uh, uh, Rob Clack and uh, Philip Hutchinson's new book about uh, the Jack the Ripper of London then and now. Uh, it's a fantastic photographic book. Uh, so, so, and even as I mentioned, Sheldon uh, and his book on the victims of Jack the Ripper. I mean, these are books that don't discuss theories. They don't discuss suspects, and you know, they don't. And it's it's nice to get away from that because it sort of puts the entire case in perspective. You know, we we get to learn more about the victims. We get to learn more about the crimes. We get to learn to more about uh, Victorian London. You know, what was happening at the time politically. I mean, these things are all important to the case. We just can't look at the victims and the murders in isolation, which I think too many people are prone to do. Well, Robert, um, I'm, we wanted to keep this show roughly to an hour, and I, th I think we're just about there. Um, are yeah, we've the, done a good job. Yes, we have. And, and uh, normally we would... Um, take this last bit of the show to talk about other issues that have come up um, related to Ripperology um, off topic but um, I, I the major event that happened this week was uh, that casebook.org's uh, massive hard drive failure um, and in which probably hundreds of thousands of individual posts, have been lost, um, which is quite a blow. And I found out prepare, trying to prepare for this podcast within the last 48 hours um, even um, is uh, quite a blow. So uh, not like it's a death in the family, but, you know, our thoughts are with Stephen Ryder and, um, and we all, I'm sure, collectively hope for the rebirth of, of the Casebook wow. website. Absolutely. If, if anyone can get, yeah, yeah. if anyone can get the information back, it's Stephen Ryder. I mean, you know, he's worked tirelessly over the last ten plus years to, you know, to bring uh, Jack the Ripper to the masses, and has done a great job. So, so yeah, let's let's hope for the best. But, but at least uh, the arch at least the archives appear to be intact, though. It just seems to be the message boards from two thousand and seven onwards, like all the yeah, and the photo are, archive too. Yeah. Yeah, all the archives, the dissertation sections. No, the photo uh, archives have been lost. Uh, yeah. it, the good thing is, though, is that uh, uh, most of the material was supplied by Robert Clack and John Bennett. Right. And, uh, and, and they can put that stuff back up. Right. Uh, because uh, most of it was not supplied by Stephen. So uh, the photo archive, I think, will come up, you know, uh, rather quickly. Uh, the dissertation section is still up. All the old archives before 2007 are still up, and um, yeah, and so hopefully we'll get back uh, the material from 2007 from the forum boards because you know there's always lots of interesting posts and new information that don't appear elsewhere, and uh, yeah, let's hope for the best on that. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, on that note, um, we'll call this a podcast, and we th think. Uh, Robert J. McLaughlin for joining us today, the author of the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs. 
I'm glad you guys will have to have me back on the panel so I can ask some questions. Of Absolutely. Some of your you're, yeah. you're, yeah. you're welcome at any time. Um, our, our next show, episode three, will be about Jack the Ripper in the movies. Kind of a break from the heavy stuff and where we get to play uh, theater critics. So I know how... Oh boy, I love that <laughs> stuff. That's a lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and, and and Robert, if you want to join us for that show, you're more than welcome to. Sure. So, okay. Uh, well, then that will be it. This was uh, Rippercast episode two, capturing the victims. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you, Mike thank you. and Hull. No and, problem. Thank and you. Ro Robert came to us. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but Edmonton, in Canada. Yep. And, and thank you, everybody. And uh, Howard and Philly. Take care, gentlemen. All righty. Thanks, guys. <laughs>